Let's just bow our hearts. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that your word gives us hope. That your word reveals that which is going to happen. And it reveals in whom we need to have our trust. Our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, this morning as we study these two fairly short but incredibly detailed books of Thessalonians. Father, just give us understanding and insight through your Holy Spirit, we ask. And Lord, stir us up. May we be excited, not just that we are saved, but the Lord, you are sanctifying us and you are preparing us for an eternity together with you. Lord, we just give you this time now in Jesus' name. So, we've actually had, this is our 42nd session going through the Bible this year. And we've made it as far as now as First and Second Thessalonians. Thessalonica itself was the capital of Macedonia Secunda, or Second Macedonia. Original Macedonia, the geographical area, um, had then been uh, taken over by the Romans. The Romans kind of renamed this area the Second Macedonia. Um, a slightly different, slightly larger area, uh, broader area in what we today would uh, refer to as Turkey. Uh, Macedonia itself was founded in about 315 BC by Cassander. Now that name may um, ring bells because when we're going through our study in Daniel, uh, this individual came up. He was a son-in-law of Philip of Macedon, or better known probably as um, the brother-in-law of Alexander the Great. And actually he became one of Alexander's key generals. Um, and he named it, Cassander named this, uh, this city after his wife, Thessaloniki. Um, and she obviously was uh, the half-sister uh, of Alexander as well. So the city kind of dates back to uh, the early Greek times. Geographically, uh, obviously we are in Europe. If you remember last week as we looked uh, into the book of uh, Philippians and so on, um, Paul and his companions, a second missionary journey, had travelled through revisiting the places. The Holy Spirit had led them not to go into Bithynia, but to come over to Troas, or ancient Troy as we would know the, the city. Um, from Troy they come across through Salmas, across them to the... Um, um, mainland to Philippi uh, and then they come down from Philippi after that incident where they'd been put in jail and everything else they leave there and they come down to Thessalonica Uh, now it's incredible because they're only there for about three weeks before they're forced to move on now just again a bit more background Uh, Thessalonica itself had a natural harbour it was also situated on what's known as the Via uh, Ignatia Uh, it was the main route between Rome and the east, it was a very strategically important place Um, it was the most populous town of Macedonia uh, and it basically had become the capital of Greece at this time not just just Greece but um, all these other geographical areas combined, this had become the, the major hub Estimated somewhere around about 200,000 people lived there uh, at the time that Paul had gone to visit. So you see, it was a really important place. One of the things that we do find from history is that they'd been given freedom by Rome. So Rome didn't bother stationing any centurions or any guards there. They had freedom. They're one of only a couple of cities, uh, Athens being another, that had that freedom. Now you can understand that therefore they didn't want anything coming in that was going to upset that liberty that they had, that Rome had granted them. And so Paul arrives and uh, stirs things up, and that leads to the problems that we're going to see. Um, today, incidentally, it's still uh, the, one of the most important cities, um, reckoned as being the second most important city uh, in Greece. So 
we let's just uh, look at a bit of the background in the book of Acts, which will lead us in nicely to our study. So we're going to pick up chapter 17. Luke recording it says now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia they came to Thessalonica where was a synagogue of the Jews now if you remember back in um, Philippians there was no synagogue there was not enough Jewish males there to form a synagogue you need at least 12 to do that here there was a synagogue seemingly a strong synagogue of the Jews and Paul I love this as his manner was you want to know how Paul did things this is the way he did it as his manner was went in unto them And three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the scriptures. I love that because we have a reasonable faith. It's not something that is, you know, you've got to just take it on blind faith. Paul reasons from the scriptures. What scriptures was he reasoning from? Well, the Old Testament. The New Testament at this point hadn't been written yet. So Paul is reasoning with them out of the Old Testament, showing that Jesus is the Christ. We read in verse 3, opening... And alleging that Christ must needs have suffered, again showing them that from the Old Testament, a little bit like we were doing this morning, our communion, seeing those those types uh, and so on, those figures that we read in the Old Testament, all speaking of Jesus and what he did for us. Showing that he must needs suffer and rise again from the dead. And that this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is the Messiah, is Christ. The, the Greek word Christ, the Hebrew word Messiah. The, this one whom I preach to you is the Messiah. The one who was promised, the one who we were expecting. And we're told in verse 4, Some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas, and of the devout Greeks, a great multitude, and of the chief women, not a few. So a significant number of people respond to Paul's teaching. But, and here we go, the Jews which believe not, Moved with envy. All of a sudden, people are starting to follow after Paul. Well, as we read through, uh, we see Jesus challenging um, the Jewish leaders, religious leaders, um, for, in a sense, their love of themselves, their love of their own position, their own importance, and so on. And now somebody's coming in and challenging that. No, but the religion part aside, it's, it's kind of their jobs, in a sense, are on the line here. And so... We read, and I love the way that the King James puts this, um, they moved with Emory, they took certain lewd fellows of the baser sort. I think that kind of explains it quite well, doesn't it? I mean, these are despicable characters, basically, that they find. And they gathered a company and set all the city on an uproar and assaulted the house of Jason and sought to bring uh, out to, uh, them out to the people. And when they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren unto the rulers of the city, crying that these have turned the world upside down, and I come here also. What a great testimony. Wouldn't it be nice if that was said of us, that we turned the world upside down because of our love for Jesus Christ? And then we carry on verse 7. With whom Jason um, hath received, and all these do contrary to the decrees of Caesar. Now, you know, they're trying to make this a, a political thing. You know, they weren't doing anything contrary to the decrees of Caesar. Saying that there is another king, one Jesus. Well, Jesus had already had this conversation with Pilate. And Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. Now, of course, Jesus will return. He will establish his kingdom at the right time. For now, Jesus does allow, has appointed, and we read in the book of Romans, that the governments that exist are there because God has allowed and decreed them to be so. So there was no challenge to Caesar's authority or throne at this point. But these Jewish leaders nevertheless use whatever argument they can bring forward. And they troubled the people and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. And when they had taken security, so they go, Jason had posted bail effectively, as we'd put in our vernacular. And of all the other, they let them go. 
And the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea. And so Paul and Silas, they flee. Uh, the, the, the Christians now in um, Thessalonica want to move them on. They don't want them to be uh, captured and so on. And they move down and end up going down towards uh, Corinth after staying in Berea for a while. So... William MacDonald in the Believer's Bible Commentary makes this comment. He says, The first book by any famous author is usually highly prized as indicating earliest emphasis and gift of communication. And it says, and obviously, because Thessalonians, we believe, was the first letter, the first Thessalonians is the first letter that Paul writes um, in terms of a chronological point of view. And he says, The amazing amount of Christian teaching that the apostle was able to fit into his short stay at Thessalonica is clearly indicated by the many doctrines he discusses as already known by the Thessalonians. And he goes on and says, Today the rapture and second advent of our Lord are widely believed and looked for by evangelical Christians. This was not always so. The revival of interest in this doctrine, especially through the writings of the early brethren in Great Britain, from 1825 to 1850 and so on, was largely based on 1 Thessalonians. Without this short letter, we would be terribly deprived in our understanding of the various aspects of Christ's return. Now we'll go on to look at some of the things he's highlighting there as we go through this study in just a moment. A brief outline of the, the book, of the, the first Thessalonians. Uh, chapter 1 really speaks of the coming of Christ and, and really showing that it should be an inspiring hope for us. Secondly, the Christ is coming, it should be a working hope. It's our reason to, to carry on doing what we're doing. It's an amazing chapter, we'll look at that in a moment. Um, chapter 3 into chapter 4, that Christ is coming and that should be a purifying hope. You know, we're told in, again, Romans 12 verse 2, that we should be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And really that theme, as Gerald highlighted earlier, all the way through scripture, we find that this, this call to come out from among the world. The coming of Christ is a comforting hope as well, is what we see in the latter part of chapter 4. And then finally, in the final chapter, the coming of Christ is a rousing hope. And really, all of these things are addressed. That breakdown is from J. Vernon McGee. So let's go through and have a look at some of the, the points that we can see as we go through. There's only five chapters in this, uh, this first letter to Thessalonians. And seemingly, again, it was only a very short time, a matter of months possibly, after Paul's visit there, that he writes this letter. Now, again, just to think of the background, as I was just mentioning a moment ago, Paul had seen the turmoil, he'd seen the persecution that had arisen within just a short time there. And so Paul's concerned about what's happening to this new church, this church that he's just planted. And so within a matter of months, um, by the time he's got down to Corinth, he writes this letter and sends it back. And then very hot on the heels, we have the second letter that he writes as well. So... It starts Paul and Silas. Paul, uh, Paul refers to Silas as Silvanus. Uh, Luke always refers to him as uh, Silas, but the same individual. So Paul and Silas, Paul and Silvanus, and Timothy, unto the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father. You know, not in Macedonia, we're in God. That's our location. Uh, we're citizens of heaven. And from the Lord Jesus Christ, grace be unto you and peace. We said last time, those two twins of the New Testament, grace and peace. But peace will only come once we know the grace of God. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul says, we give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. 
you know, the encouragement we can be to each other as we find out that we're growing, that we're moving forward. Uh, it can be such a blessing. And Paul's saying, we just give thanks to God. You know, we, we think of you, and we're making mention of you in our prayers. I mean, that really is building on what Paul had already said back in Galatians about bearing each other's burdens. Remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father. Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. What a great statement. That we've been elected. Yeah, that God has chosen us from before the foundation of the world. Yes, we have to respond. It doesn't negate free will. But nor does it negate that God has predestined those who are his. And that's that kind of paradox that so many people struggle with. It's no problem. God is outside of time. Both are true. See, Paul says, For our gospel came not unto you with word only, but also in power, and in the Holy Ghost, and in much assurance, as you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. This is interesting, because Paul is now saying about the gospel that was presented, one of the, the evidence that he presents that it's true was his own lifestyle. And I think that's interesting, because our lifestyle should be an incredible witness and evidence to the world. That which we profess is true. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction. And they had received the word in much affliction. The, the difficulty they had, these Jews that were really making it very difficult. We've just read of Jason who'd been put uh, again in prison for the short period of time and then posted bail and he'd been allowed out again and so on. With joy of the Holy Ghost. You see, those two go side by side. Sometimes we have the affliction, but we're never devoid of the joy of the Holy Ghost, regardless of the circumstances. So that you were examples to all that believe in Macedonia and Acacia. Okay? For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Acacia, but also in every place your faith to Godward is spread abroad so that we need not speak uh, anything. So just Paul highlighting here that this incredible witness that this church has become in this short time since being planted, being brought to a knowledge of Christ. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how you turned to God from idols. You know, before you served God, that's what you were serving. You were serving idols, whatever those idols were. You know, we look in the Old Testament, we see the children of Israel and the surrounding nations so often bow down and worship these idols, and it's kind of almost laughable. You think, how could anybody be so stupid as to worship a stump of a tree and call it God? But look at the things that we worship. Look at the things that we bow down to in our lives, that we give time to. I mean, it's probably far more uh, ridiculous. Um, you know, uh, Chuck Mizzler mentioned a number of times that the ancient cultures used to take a tree and carve it and so on and then worship it as their God. Well, we've taken nothing and declared it to be God. Because the mantra today that's taught from the schools upward is in the beginning nothing. Well, that's far more insulting to a holy God than even something that he created you know, but this is the, the way the world is. We've turned from idols by his grace and we now serve the living and true God. And then we're told, verse 10, and to wait, and this is really where Paul is leading to with this, this opening section, to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, and what a statement this is, which delivered us from the wrath to come. That work is delivered, that is past tense, it's happened. We have been delivered from something that is yet to come. It's already agreed. In a sense, the ticket is already bought and paid for. 
We've been delivered from the wrath that is coming. A couple of things straight away we observe and we can note from this. One, wrath is coming. And that's all the way through the Old Testament we find that recorded for us. That God's wrath will come on this unbelieving world. But that, as believers in Jesus Christ, we have already been promised that we will be delivered from that wrath. Why? On account of Jesus Christ, who died for us and rose again. Because he paid for our sin on the cross. So we don't need to be judged when God's wrath is poured out on this world. See, throughout the Old Testament, God had foretold of a day when his wrath will be poured out on this unbelieving and wicked world. And in contrast, repeated assurance are given to the righteous that they will be delivered from the day of wrath. Many scriptures we could refer to. Just firstly, in Isaiah chapter 13, just to understand this day of the Lord. Now, we've looked recently about the day of Christ, and we'll talk about that again in a short while. But we need to understand the distinction, because Isaiah says, Howl ye, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as a destruction from the Almighty. Therefore shall all hands be faint, and every man's heart shall melt. And they shall be afraid. Pangs and sorrow shall take hold of them. They shall be in pain as a woman that travails. And they shall be amazed at one another. Their faces shall be as flames. Now notice where this wrath comes from. It's from God. You see, a lot of people talk about tribulation. They say, but Jesus said we'd experience tribulation. Yes, we will. But that's not the tribulation. See, there is a time coming that is referred to as this time of tribulation. Jesus himself in Matthew 24 gives it that title. There'll be great tribulation, Jesus speaks of. And that time is a time not of persecution. That's what all Christians will experience. Anybody who is godly will experience persecution, we're told in scripture. But this is a specific time of judgment that is coming from God himself. Behold the day of the Lord comes, cruel both with wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he shall destroy, now notice here, the sinners thereof out of it. This is the purpose of the judgment that is coming upon this world. And we're told, for the stars of heaven, the constellations uh, thereof shall not give their light, the sun shall be darkened, and it's going forth, and the moon shall not cause her light to shine. Very much reminiscent of Jesus' words in Matthew 24. And again, We carry on verse 11 of Isaiah 13. I will punish the world for their evil and the wicked for their iniquity. And I will cause the arrogancy of the proud to cease and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. So notice, this is a punishment, this time of wrath that is coming for the evil ones, for the wicked people of this world. It says, and I will make man more precious than fine gold, either a man than the gold wedge of Ophir. Therefore will I shake the heavens and the earth shall remove out of her place in the wrath of the Lord of hosts and in the day of his fierce anger. So there's no question about this period of time. But we have numerous examples. We could look at Genesis 18 and we read there, just the tail part of this verse is Abraham speaking with God about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham says, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? He's speaking of, would you slay the righteous and the wicked? Would you bring judgment on them both at the same time? And of course we know what happens, that the righteous are removed prior to the judgment coming. In Isaiah 26, we read there, come my people, enter thou into thy chambers which is just an interesting concept in itself, and shut thy door about thee. And that has just a kind of, to me, overtones of what we read in the book of Genesis with the ark. That the Noah and his family were taken into the, the ark and the Lord shut the door. Hide thyself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation be overpassed. 
Now, this is very clear where it's talking all the time it's talking about. For behold, the Lord comes out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for the iniquity. The earth also shall disclose her blood and shall no more cover her slain. This verse in Isaiah is telling us that there will be a time of judgment from God, but there is a way for those who are righteous to be hidden during this period of time. To hide thyself for a while until the indignation, until God's wrath is past. Zephaniah in the Old Testament, chapter 2, verse 3 says, Seek you the Lord, all you meek of the earth, which have wrought his judgment. Seek righteousness, seek meekness. It may be that you shall be hid in the day of the Lord's anger. Another reference to those who are righteous being protected, moved out of the way, hidden when God brings his wrath upon this world. Psalm 27. For the time, for in the time of trouble, he shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret of his tabernacle shall he hide me. He shall set me upon a rock. Now, some may argue that's generically looking at just times of trouble. Well, if it's true, then this also applies in the, the specific application as well. That in a time of trouble, we have a promise that the Lord will hide those who are His. Genesis chapter seven verse five. Again, this is the one I mentioned a moment ago. The Lord said to Noah, "Come thou and all thy house into the ark." For thee have I seen righteous before me in this generation. As God was pouring his wrath on the world, the Lord brought his righteous ones, those who were his, into a place of safety to protect them from the wrath. And Luke 21, 36, after speaking of all the judgment that's coming upon this earth, Jesus says, Watch you therefore and pray always, that you may be accounted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass, and to stand before the Son of Man. What a statement. So Jesus says there is a way of escaping. The things that are coming, and that we can stand before the Son of Man. <clears throat> Clearly these things from the context, we read in Luke 21, all nations are going to be in distress, there will be wars, rumours of wars, there will be this global turmoil and so on. It's the day of the Lord, this time of tribulation. And we're told that from that time it is possible to escape from those things. Let's carry on. Um, we'll, we'll come back because the theme will be picking up as we get to chapter 4 in a moment. But in the second chapter, Chuck Miller actually said this, it's the greatest missionary manual ever written. That's quite some statement. But it's an amazing chapter as we look at it because we're not going to go through every verse, of course, in the chapter. We don't have time this morning. But Paul reminds them of his example, the way he had lived. He speaks of how he had suffered, how he had been honest in all things. How he had not tried to please men. How he had not tried to take advantage. How, that he would not used them to further himself. How that he had been gentle. How he dedicated his life to serve. How he would worked to pay his own way. And how he had been unblameable, is the word that's used in the text in the English. You know, this was Paul's way of living. And he's effectively saying, look, that's the pattern that you should be living by. That's the example you should follow. You see... All of this was said so that he could exalt them that you would walk worthy of God who has called you unto his kingdom and glory. So Paul says, you know, you've got my example. This is how you should live. This is your instruction manual in a sense. And the reason for all of that is that you would walk worthy of a holy God who's called you, of all people, you and me, into his kingdom and glory. Verse 13 just says, For this cause also we thank God without ceasing, because when you receive the word of God, which you heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as in truth the word of God, which effectively works also in you that believe. 
Interesting contrast that with Acts 17.11. In, in um, 17.11 we have the reference to the Bereans who receive the word with all readiness of mind and search the scriptures daily. Now often that verse is put forward as the model. And of course we should search the scriptures daily. And I would encourage you, don't take anything I say, but always go back to scripture and see whether it's what scripture says. It's not my opinion that matters, it's what the Bible says, God's word. But I just think it's interesting because sometimes... We have this impression that, the, the, and we're talking in the text, that the Bereans were more noble. But I just wonder when that's written for us, whether there's almost a little bit of sarcasm in the text. Because those in Thessalonica, we've already seen that they were a great witness. And they just received the word as it was the word of God, not the word of men. Now it doesn't negate our need to check things out and to always go back to scripture. But you see, the Bereans are commended for diligently checking out things for themselves. But are not the Thessalonians more so for a simple childlike faith? Just an interesting thing that, you know, sometimes it's good that we do have that kind of, well, I'm not sure, I need to go and check the word. Yeah, okay, fine. But if it's what the word of God says, just believe it as the word of God. Again, not negating the need to be diligent and to check scripture against scripture. But when we know that's what the Bible says, just believe it. Just take it as it is. And that's what the Thessalonians seemingly did. And Paul commends them for it. And then he says, For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Are not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? For you are our glory and joy. Paul speaks here of this crown. You see, why did Paul contend hard to see these believers abide in the faith? You know, Paul could have just moved on and left them and, well, we'll see how they get on. But no, Paul doesn't leave them. Even just a short time after planting these churches, he's writing a letter to encourage them to see how they're going, what's going on there. You see, he didn't want to lose his prize. And it's not a selfish thing on Paul's part, because he was genuinely concerned for them. But he knew that there was a reward that would be given him for those who he brought into a relationship with Jesus. The question, of course, for us is, who have we brought into the Lord? Or even, who's the Lord entrusted to your care? If you haven't got somebody that the Lord has entrusted to your care, well, ask the Lord to show you who he has, because I'm sure you'll find that the Lord has entrusted somebody to your care. You know, the Lord seems to use frequently that Paul and Timothy kind of relationship, where there will be somebody who you'll be able to encourage in the faith. It may be a spouse. It may be another member of the congregation. It may be somebody in another church. But I'm sure that if you look and you pray for the Lord to reveal that, the Lord will show you somebody who he's given you whom you can encourage and edify and help to teach just a little bit. You know, by the way, teaching isn't something that's a unique gift for those that stand up at the front. We're all, a servant of the Lord should be apt to teach, is what we're told. All of us should be able to teach. And it's something we should be looking to do to encourage and edify and help each other to grow. Again, what have you done to nurture them? Have you made, as Paul does here, your own life an example? Can you go to another believer and say, look, look at the way I live. That's what you should be doing. Quite a challenge, isn't it? But that's what Paul did. Okay, so chapter 3, let's just go through this quickly. Paul says here, in the first few verses, Wherefore, when we could no longer forbear, we thought it good to be left to Athens alone, and sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow labourer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you. You see, so not only are these letters being written, but Timothy was sent back prior to this to establish them, to comfort you concerning your faith, that no man should be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are appointed thereunto. 
We're going to experience trouble. That's what happens. For verily, when you, we were with you, we told you before that you should suffer tribulation, even as it came to pass, and you know. For this cause, when I could no longer forbear, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter, having tempted you, and our labour be in vain. So Paul's saying, yeah, we, he's brought these individuals to know the Lord, but he's not content just to walk away and leave it there. He wants to make sure that these people grow to maturity. But now when Timothy came from you unto us and brought to us good tidings of your faith and charity and love, and that you have good remembrance of us always, desiring greatly to see us, as we also to see you. Therefore, brethren, we were comforted over you in all our affliction and uh, distress by your faith. So they were saying, Paul saying, we had affliction and distress. We were concerned for you. Were you really growing? Had you been talked out of this? Has somebody tried to tell you these things weren't true? But really encouraged to find that you are still going on with the Lord. This wasn't just a, a confessing with the mouth. This was the twofold thing. It's a confession with the mouth and a believing in the heart. It was a real change of life for them. And the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one to another. And toward all men, even as we do towards you. To the end that he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God. Even our Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Again, what a statement. But notice at the end of that, verse 13, what Paul says there. We have a couple of things. That, a, that obviously the Lord Jesus is coming, but when he comes, he will come with all his saints. Now, just purely a process of deduction, are all his saints with him yet? No, because some of us are on earth. Now, if this statement is true and we're to take it as a face value, we're saying that when Jesus comes... At the coming of the Lord Jesus with all his saints, at that point he's saying these individuals, we should all be established, unblameable, in holiness before God at that point in time, when he comes with his saints. We'll expound that in more in just a moment. In chapter 4, we read, Furthermore, then we beseech you, brethren, um, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus that you have received of us how you ought to walk and to please God, so uh, you would abound more and more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. And I love this verse. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you should abstain from fornication. As we talked previously, that word sanctification in the Hebrew is the word kiddushen. It's the word that is useful of marriage. That's setting apart one for another. And of course, we are, as Jared said this morning, our sanctification is not being separated from the world, it's separated unto Christ. But I love the simple statement, this is the will of God. What is the will of God in your current situation? That you be sanctified. What's the will of God in the trials that you're going through? That you be sanctified. What is the will of God in the health issues you struggle with? That you be sanctified. What is the will of God in that stressful situation you have at work? That you be sanctified. Every time the answer is the same. God is wanting to carry on this work in you. And he will allow the things in your life because his will is that you be set apart. Because that is the best thing for you. Better than anything you could engineer for yourself. Every time you get to the, I don't know what this situation is about. Just remind yourself, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 3. The will of God is that you be set apart for him. And that's why the Lord allows whatever it is we go through. Such an important verse. 1 Thessalonians 4, chapter 3. Should we say it together? 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. 
Remember it. That God's will is that we be set apart for him. Okay. So, we now get to this really important portion. J. Vernon McGee says, one of the most important prophetic passages in the scriptures. So let's just look. I mean, first of all, we're going to be talking about the rapture of the church. No secret there. There's, you know, is it a controversial doctrine or is it our blessed hope? Well, firstly, just let's address a few things. What does the word rapture mean? Well, we're just simply talking about being translated from earth to heaven without dying. And yes, it is in scripture because Enoch was raptured or translated, whichever word you prefer. Elijah also was raptured or translated. Jesus also, at the time of his ascension, was taken from earth to heaven. And then we have two witnesses again that are referenced in the book of Revelation, chapter 11, who are translated. They do die, they're resurrected, but then they're taken from earth to heaven without dying at that point. So we have a number of examples where this has occurred in scripture. So it's not some way off thing that we don't ever find in scripture. Does the word rapture occur in the Bible? Well, you won't find rapture written in our English translations, but you'll neither find the word trinity either. Okay, so there's lots of words that we may not have in the text that doesn't negate the doctrine of these things. The word really is we found in first, find in First Thessalonians 4 verse 17, and it simply means to be caught up. And that's how it's translated in most English translations. It comes from the Greek word harpazo, and it means to snatch away, to lift, to transport, etc., Okay. In the Latin Vulgate, uh, by Jerome, it was translated there as rapturus, which is where we get the word rapture from. So, in a translation of the Bible, in the Latin version of the Bible, uh, we do actually have the word rapture. And that's where this word has come from, and that's what it means. So, again, it's not in the English versions of the Bible, but it's there. Whether you want to use the word translated, or rapture, whatever, don't mind. But it's there, it's in scripture. So the question is, no question about, has rapture occurred? Yes. Does the Bible teach about rapture? Yes, it does. This is clearly a passage. So the question really is, why and when? Now, the why is an important question. Let's just look at the text. Paul says, verse 13, But I would not that you be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep. Now, this is just an interesting point, because they're obviously sorrowing about believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, who have died. What happens to them when they die? And Paul says, I don't want you to sorrow as others that have no hope. Don't be like people in the world. Because he says, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, what a statement that is. He's comparing what he's about to say, or putting it onto the the level of, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, the very foundation of our faith, we can be as certain of this as we are of that. And he goes on to say, even so, them also which sleep in Jesus. And I love the way the New Testament uses that word sleep. You know, there's a lot of words that could be used. And we talk about people who are dying sometimes as sleeping. But it is a sleep. Because they'll awake from that sleep. And by the way, they're not in soul sleep and they're anim- non- uh, kind of an animated state where they're not aware of anything. Uh, Paul says, we've seen already, that to depart and be with Christ is far better. So if you die now as a believer, you go, you be with Christ in heaven. But without a resurrected body. So he says, those who sleep in Jesus, God will bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord. So this isn't just Paul's opinion, this is God saying, and Paul revealing it now, that we which are alive and remain, and Paul classes himself in the category, he believed he would be part of this group at that time. He was expecting this event. 
That we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent or proceed, not go before those which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Now, Paul makes it really simple. I don't know why the church has made it such a controversial issue. Because it's very simple. There will be a time that the Lord will come. There will be this great shout, the, the, uh, this doubt, the voice of the archangel, the trump of God. The dead in Christ, those who have died, are going to rise. We who are alive on the earth at that time are going to be caught up together and we're going to meet them in the clouds. This, this is so simple. I can't think of another way that Paul could have written this to make it easier for us to understand. We're going to be told we're to meet the Lord in the air, and then a great bit. We're going to be with the Lord forever from that moment. And we're told it should be a great comfort. We should comfort each other with these words. We shouldn't go, oh, I don't think we should talk about that. It's very contentious. We might have arguments. No, no. We should comfort each other with these words. That's what Paul says. So, the church will be raptured at some point in the future. Translated, if you prefer that term. We could be as sure of this as we can of Christ's resurrection, which is the foundation of our faith. And it should be a great comfort to the church. We will be united with our loved ones, those who have died in the faith, those who have gone on before us. And Paul elaborates on this in Corinthians, because Paul there says in Corinthians 15, This I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, we won't all die, but we shall all be changed. And it's going to happen in a moment, in an atomos, in the twinkling of an eye. And the last trump for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible. And he's talking about believers, not the world here. The dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. All of us changed. Some will be alive, some will be dead. The dead will be brought back with Christ. They will receive new resurrection bodies. I've heard it said before, they get a kind of a, a six-foot head start on us, because they you know, raise them from the, the grave, they're off they go. But then we are uh, uh, re- resurrected, we get our new resurrection body, fit for eternity. Because we're told here, that these bodies don't inherit eternity. I heard one preacher once say, why is it we need new resurrection bodies? Well, it's simply when you look at Jesus in all his glory and his majesty, these natural bodies wouldn't cope. Our hearts would stop. We're going to need a new resurrected body just to be able to look at him as he is. You know, every occasion in scripture when somebody looks at Jesus as they are, they fall down as if they were dead. And we're told that we're going to get these resurrected bodies that will be fit for eternity. Interestingly enough, if we're to be like Jesus, then Jesus' resurrected body had no blood. Just an interesting aside. We see that after the cross. He was spirit and bone. There was no blood. So this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, this mortal shall put on immortality, and then shall be brought to pass this saying. Uh, saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Death, where is thy sting? And grave, where is thy victory? And just Paul just carries on just to round out this chapter. But of the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write to you. For yourself know perfectly that the day of the Lord, this time of judgment, so comes as a thief in the night. For when they shall say peace and safety, then... Sudden destruction comes upon them, as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you like a thief. So we should see what's going on. We should get ready. 
We hear the, the sound, as it were, of the thief breaking into the house. We see it going on in the world. These signs of the times. We're not in darkness that that day will overtake us. We're told that we're children of the light and children of the day. We're not of the night or of the darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken, are drunken in the night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Again, God hasn't appointed us to wrath. And Paul has just explained what will happen. How will we escape that wrath? Because the Lord will come back and take us to be with him. And, you know, we look in John 14. It's very clear there as well. The wrath, once again. It's not talking about persecution that we all experience now. This is talking about that specific time of judgment. So the purpose of the rapture is twofold. It's to receive resurrection bodies fit for eternity and to fulfill that promise that Christ made in John 14. Now there are those that question uh, the timing of this. Now if we are to understand, as we've just seen, a number of scriptures already tell us, is to deliver us from the wrath to come. Well, this period of tribulation in Revelation and Daniel we find is a period of seven years, divided into two, three and a half year points from the text itself. Some have suggested that the rapture occurs at the time of the second coming. They're called post-tribulation because it's at the end of the tribulation. But that problem of that is we're told we're going to escape the time of God's wrath. So that doesn't work. Others suggest that we'll be raptured in the middle of the tribulation. But the whole of this period of time is a period of God's wrath as is made very clear in Revelation 6-19 to and many of the passages we could refer to in the Old Testament. So the final option is that the rapture would occur prior to this time of wrath. And all of the prophecies you can go to in scripture all indicate that this taking of the saints away from this time of trouble will occur before that time of trouble begins. So the only one that I believe fulfills the scriptural requirement is a pre-tribulation rapture, that the church will be taken before the tribulation begins. And why is it important? It's important for a very, very simple reason. And that is because on the cross, we're told that Jesus died for all of our sins. He declared to tell us die, paid in full. You see, the problem here is, was the death of Christ sufficient to pay for all of our sin? Yes, it was. But then Jesus took the wrath of God upon himself for us. So... If the church remains for a moment of that period of God's wrath, it is a denial of the completed work of Christ. Because it means that the church will be subject to that wrath that is going to be poured out upon the whole world during this time. So it's not just a trivial issue. Doctrinally, it is important. And Jesus made it very clear that he would come and take us to the place that he's preparing for us. John 14, again, verse 3, makes it absolutely clear. So just to conclude this chapter, we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient toward all men, see that none render evil for evil unto any man, but that ever ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. Lots of instruction given here. Rejoice evermore. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Quench not the spirit. Despise not prophesying. Prove all things. Now let's test all things. Hold fast that which is good. 
Abstain from all appearance of evil. You know, every single one of these things we could spend a long time on. That last one's so important. Just keep away from things that even look like they could be interpreted by somebody else as being evil or not godly or not holy or not fitting for somebody who is called a Christian. Keep away from those things. It may not be wrong, but even if it looks wrong or other people may think it looks wrong, keep away from it. And the very peace of God sanctify you holy, and I pray your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he that called you who also will do it. What a promise. Let's just quickly, because we haven't got so many chapters here, just a couple of things we need to highlight from Second Thessalonians. Well, once again, the reason for writing is quite simple. There were three principal reasons for another letter that were given so soon after the first. Firstly, that the saints were being persecuted and they needed to be encouraged. You know, it's a good reason for us to write to each other, to text each other, to call each other, just to encourage each other. But they were also being misled about the details of the day of the Lord, this time of trouble, and they needed to be enlightened, and Paul does that. And finally, some were living in idleness in view of the Lord's coming, in the Lord's return. They needed to be corrected. You know, it was like, well, the Lord's coming back. Don't need to do anything. Might as well just sit around, put my feet up. Don't need to get a job. Don't need to work. I'll wait. The Lord's coming soon. And Paul says, no, that's not the way we're going to live. So let's just look at some of those things. Just this comment from William McDonald. He says, with regard to the day of the Lord, the believers were fearful that they were already in it. Bear in mind, they were going through this tribulation, these, these troubles that they were experiencing. Their fears were strengthened by false rumours, the effect that Paul himself was teaching that the day was now present. So the apostle sets the record straight. It should be apparent that the day of the Lord is not the same as the coming of the Lord. Okay? So the second coming is distinct from the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord is distinct from the day of Christ. We need to understand these terms. That is the rapture. And the saints were not fearful the Lord had come. They were fearful that they were in the tribulation, the first phase of the day of the Lord. And so these are the things that Paul will address. So just a couple of things from the first chapter. To you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. In flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God. And that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul making it very clear here. You know, this church has been troubled by those who are teaching things contrary to that which Paul had revealed to them. So Paul again turns their focus onto the hope and the expectation they have as believers. And of these people who are troubling them, he says, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe. Because our testimony among you was believed in that day. You see, hell is eternal. We need to make that very, very clear. This comes out, you know, this everlasting destruction. Some people say that it's not. And of course, hell will also attest to God's unchanging nature. Hell will ultimately bring glory to God because it will show that God didn't cave in. God didn't just say, oh, well, you know, okay, I'll let you off. No, no, God's justice is perfect. And those that reject him and reject the only way of salvation through Jesus, there is no other solution. Paul says, Wherefore, also we pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, once again, this is that because of you. Wherefore, 
Is this what it's saying? The reality of that which we profess is the reason we profess it. And that's what Paul is saying here. You know, we profess what we profess because it's true. This isn't just a religious belief. It's true and we know it's true. The second chapter is really where we find a lot of the meats of Second Thessalonians. And Paul starts by, We beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, okay, and by our gathering together unto him. It's interesting, there's two events are highlighted there. The coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and our gathering together unto him. The second coming of Jesus Christ is one event, and the gathering together of the saints to him is another, distinct and separate event. He says, that you be not soon shaken in mind or troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter, as from us. You know, but he's saying other people were suggesting that Paul has written and said these things. As that the day of Christ is at hand. Paul alludes to a, a letter, as I was saying, that they think, or that they'd received, purportedly from him, suggesting that they'd missed the day of Christ. Again, that was the hope of the early church. Interestingly, I've got a book here. It's available. It's a book by uh, Grant Jeffrey. Uh, this is, there's a number of wonderful books he's written. This one's simply called Triumphant Return. He goes through showing how the early church confidently believed in the rapture of the saints. Going right the way back, and he's quoting numerous uh, articles and letters that were passed around in the first few centuries. There's no question. This, some people seem to suggest that this was an idea that came in in the 1800s, and um, uh, Margaret MacDonald or uh, you know, other people, apparently this idea of the rapture. No, it goes right the way back to the book of Thessalonians. Paul says, let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and the man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. Just... The second part of that is saying that that day, the day that we're talking about, the day of Christ, the rapture of the church, is not going to come. The second thing on that list is until we get to this point, the Son of Man is going to be revealed. So this is, that's going to happen. The, the, the day of Christ is going to happen before that, and then the, the, the man of sin will be revealed. So it means that the church will be taken before Antichrist is fully revealed. Now, we may get an indication, but it's not going to be fully unveiled to the world until after we're taken. The other thing that's interesting, though, is that that day shall not come except there come a falling away. Now, a lot of people believe that this falling away is referencing a time of apostasy. Now, the Greek word that's used there is apostasia, but literally the word means a departing. It's been taken to use, be used as apostasy. And the, clearly there are passages in Timothy, for example. He speaks of those that would depart from the faith. And that certainly will happen in the latter times. I don't believe this verse is talking about that. Because in the context that this is written, it could be used either to indicate departing from the faith, not I don't believe in the context here, or leaving a location, departing from. And what Paul is saying here, I believe, is that, that don't let anyone deceive you. For that day, the day of Christ, the rapture of the church, will not come except there come a departing. That's going to happen first, and then the man of sin will be revealed. So, again, I believe we're looking at the departing of the saints at the time of the rapture and the unveiling of the, of the Antichrist as well at that point in time. It's, if, if you want to dig in and study the Greek, uh, that becomes even clearer when you compare it with some of the other ways those phrases are used in the New Testament. And we're told of this Antichrist who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he, as God, sits in the temple of God showing himself that he is God. 
this arrogant individual, is going to set himself up to be worshipped as God. Just as Antiochus Epiphanes had done. If you remember when we were looking at Daniel, we talked about this. This individual... 167 to 164 BC, had uh, overrun Israel, and during that time he put an image of himself in the temple uh, as if to be worshipped and so on. He sacrificed a pig on the altar, all these things abhorrent. Antichrist is going to have an image of himself erected in the temple, which of course means that a Jewish temple must be rebuilt for that to happen. So expect to see something going on in the Temple Mountain. It could happen at any moment because there's nothing to prevent that temple being rebuilt straight away. Incidentally, there's a lot of competent scholars that suggest that the site of the original temple is not actually where the Dome of the Rock now stands. That is another point on the Temple Mount. They both could be erected side by side. Alternately, Israel sitting on a fault line, Jerusalem sitting on a fault line. There could be an earthquake, it could destroy the Dome of the Rock. There could be all sorts of other things, war or whatever. But the temple will be uh, rebuilt. Jesus, Paul, John and so on all make reference to this. But then we're told that, and he had power to give life, this is Revelation 13, 15, to give uh, life to the image of the beast, this image, this idol that's set up. That the image of the beast should both speak and cause uh, that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. So this has become a major problem during this time of tribulation. Jesus in Matthew 24 says, When you therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. Again, this, this image, this abomination, this idol, that will make the temple desolate. Daniel referred to it. Jesus makes reference to it. Standing in the holy place, whosoever reads, let them understand, says Matthew. Let them which are in Judea flee to the mountains. It's not a command to Christians, it's a command to the Jews. It's now time to get out. Back into Thessalonians. Paul says, remember you not that when I was with you, I told you all these things? Incredible. Three weeks and you covered all of this stuff. This is stuff that many Christians have never heard of. In three weeks, Paul covers all of these things. Sanctification, the way we should live as Christians. And of course, what is going to happen as we get towards the end. And now, you know that what withholds that he might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity does already work. Only he that now lets or prevents, holds it back, will let until he be taken out of the way. Who is the one that is preventing? Notice it's uh, uh, he that is preventing, until he. And I believe quite simply this restrainer of the mystery of iniquity is none other than the Holy Spirit who indwells the saints. So that leads some people to ask the question, well how will people be saved during the tribulation without the Holy Spirit being here? It's not a problem. Because you've got lots of people in the Old Testament who, like David, or we read those that were responsible for building the tabernacle, Samson, you know, the Holy Spirit came upon them. The law can work, that's not a problem to God. But uniquely, the Holy Spirit has been given to the church. Look at John 14. And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you, what does that word say? Forever. If the church is to be taken out of this world, well, the Holy Spirit will also leave with us. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it sees him not, neither knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and shall be in you. And I believe that as we are taken at the time of the rapture, the Holy Spirit, the restrainer, the one who is holding back iniquity in this world. Again, I believe through the prayers of the saints, but the Holy Spirit is the one who is doing it. He will be taken out of the way. And then if I may use the expression, all hell will break loose on earth. And that's when we get to Revelation 6 and the beginning of that time of tribulation. 
back into Thessalonians, and then that wicked shall be revealed, that wicked one, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and just shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. And a number of scriptures we can make reference to in regard to that. And we're told that his working is after the working of Satan with power, signs, lying wonders, deceivableness of unrighteousness um, in them that perish, because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. And then we're told, for this reason God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. We could spend a long time trying to unpack this, but that's quite a scary statement. That they all might be damned who believe not the truth, but have pleasure in unrighteousness. Well, the third chapter of Thessalonians, chapter Second Thessalonians, finally, says Paul, finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may have free course. And goes on just to speak about those unreasonable people that are in this world you know i encourage you just to read uh, these verses that we've got here because there is so much that paul gives there again more instruction and then in this final admonishment verse 16 just picking up now the lord of peace himself give you peace always by all means the lord be with you all and then finally the salutation of paul my own hand which is a token in every epistle so i write the grace of our lord jesus christ be with you all Amen. And Paul brings his letter to a close. Just incredible. Just in a few chapters, how much information Paul gives us, doctrinally and everything else. But what a hope we have as Christians. That this world is not our home. You know, we don't have to worry about the things that we experience. I mean, Jared last week was sharing with you, we we sent it out in the email, about not worrying. And we don't need to worry. Because we've got this incredible hope that this world is not our home. And then we have something so much better awaiting. You know, when will that rapture take place? One of the incredible things we realize is that there is nothing that has to happen before that takes place. Nothing. Could be this afternoon. Could be today. Could be this week. Wouldn't it be good? Yeah, we don't know. There are a number of things that have to take place before the second coming comes. All revealed in scripture. But there's nothing that has to take place. Uh, there may be things we'll see we may see the temple be rebuilt we may see some of those things start to happen but it's nothing in scripture that has to take place that's why when we start to see these things come to pass we're to lift up our heads because our salvation draws near let's bow our hearts Father we just thank you for your word we thank you for these great promises that you have given us thank you Lord that you will not leave us to experience your wrath Because Jesus has already paid in full for everything. And so Jesus, we thank you for what you have accomplished. We thank you that you will come again and you receive us to yourself. And that you will take us to the place you've been preparing. And Lord, there before your throne we will worship you. We will lay our crowns at your feet. Jesus, we will drink of that cup again anew with you in your Father's kingdom as you promised. And we will celebrate your death and your resurrection, as we look with our own eyes upon the Lamb who'd been slain. And Lord, as we sang earlier, we can only imagine what it will be like. Will we sing? Will we be able to sing? Will tears be falling down our face, so in awe at what you have done? But Lord, we thank you that today we are closer than we've ever been to your return and Lord we wait expectantly we look forward to that time when you come to take us to be with you Jesus we love you we thank you we long 
for that time. But Lord, in the time that remains, help us to remember that we are here for a purpose. We're here to encourage each other, to build each other up, to teach each other. Lord, as Paul was doing, to be an example and encourage others in the faith. And Lord, to continue to witness to this lost and fallen world. So Lord, as again, as your word tells us, may we redeem the time. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.